Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shebb. Sometimes you meet somebody who is so deeply committed to the program and fellowship of their recovery that they're able to stay sober no matter what tragedies happen in their life. Robert is one of those people. He shares with us what his life looked like before treatment and what he's done to stay sober after treatment. He begins the story by talking about how his alcoholism was taking a toll on his marriage and family without him even realizing it. This woman that I married, her name was Teresa, and she was a great woman, active in um, spiritual things. And uh, But when a woman like that marries a guy like me, it's the end of all her troubles. It's the front end of all her troubles is what mm. it really is, see? Because here's the kind of thing that would happen to me. Uh, if it was six months ago during the baseball season, I'd say, you know, I'm just going to meet Matt at the bar. We're just going to have a couple of beers. The Braves started at 4. They'll be through at 7, and I'll be home for dinner. And I'll be heading from the gym over to see Matt, and I'm thinking I'm going to have one, maybe two beers, no more than three. And I sit down, and the Braves are playing, and it's the eighth or ninth inning. I've had two or three beers, and it's close. And they play one extra inning, and I have that fourth or fifth beer. You know, Matt may or may not go home, but, you know, Sports Center comes on. I'm thinking, well, it's a little bit past dinner. I'm just going to have a couple shots. I'm going to drink. There's some people I'm talking to and some people I want to meet. And before I know it, it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and I've missed dinner. And I don't even call home because at this point I know that uh, Teresa's disappointed, that she's saddened, that she is upset, and she's probably put dinner away. And so I just go ahead and drink, and I sneak into the house, and I get up, and when I show up at Alcoholics Anonymous, and I show up at a treatment center like this, they say, Robert, who are you hurting? I say, you know, I'm really not hurting anyone. If I'm hurting anyone, I'm just hurting me. But if you ask my parents when they had to bail me out of jail, when you ask my brother, my friends, my parents about the shame cause when I'm arrested for things like forging prescriptions and drug violations, if you ask my wife, are you people that worked for me or people that I worked for, I'm just leaving just a wide swath of troubles, and I don't even see it because the only thing I care about is that I get to do what I want and drink when I want to and all this kind of stuff. So on the front end, there were a few problems like that, and problems did escalate. There was periods of sobriety, and uh, and we had challenges. One was having challenges having kids, and we, we end up not being able to have kids is when that whole uh, she had to do some stuff with uh, her doctor, and this one I had to have that surgery where I started popping pills too. But we ended up adopting a son, and this was one of those times where it was he was born. Stuart was born April 29th, nineteen eighty-seven, and we were called uh, the day after that and went to pick him up two days after that. And the adoption agency was down in Thomasville, and this was one of those times where I really put my foot down and said, "This is going to be one of those times where I'm going to quit drinking." I'm going to straighten up. I'm going to fly right. I'm not going to be popping those pills. I'm not going to be chugging that cough syrup or drinking that vodka or all that kind of stuff because I wanted to be a good father. I wanted to be a good spouse. I was raised that way. And so we went down, picked up Stuart, and this little baby boy, I can remember they brought him out. He is in a laundry basket with towels at the bottom and things like that. And we put him in the car seat and drove back to Atlanta. And I got home and my parents were there and Teresa's parents were there and um, it was a wonderful scene. Everybody that was in the house are people that I love. The baby's crying, diapers had to be changed, that anxiety builds up, and, 
you know, you get that bit of just a little bit of irritability, you know what a, a beer or two will do for you. And so the, the, the commitment was firm. And if you'd taken a lie detector test, I'd have passed it. Mm-hmm. And I swore I was quitting, and yet I'd drink. And so these are the kind of problems that that continued and she had to face. And, you know, if we spin forward through uh, the arrest and she has to bail me out of jail and my son was probably uh, four or five years old at that point through probation years, 10 years of probation, intensive probation. I'm having to go down and I wasn't even staying clean or sober through that. And I'm not going to get... <laughs> into how you can do that, but <laughs> I don't give people ideas. But, you know, I got off of probation, and that was about the time that I showed up at Mar. And at this time, my dad was living with me, and uh, he got sick. This was August of 2001. I'd been sober four months. I'd worked the 12 steps. I'd made amends. But he got an infection as pacemaker, and he was in the hospital over at St. Joseph's right down the road from here and down the road from where I lived. And I can remember I visited him on a Saturday morning. I'd visit him about 6.30 in the morning. And in August, I was still in Mar. Uh, and he said to me, he said, you know, Robert, there comes a time in a man's life where you have to make peace with God and your fellow man. And I've done that. I'm ready to meet my maker. Well, this is the kind of thing he had been trying to teach me all along. Be at peace with God. Be at peace with your fellow man. And, you know, I had to not learn the lesson that my parents had offered me. They offered me good educational training some private education, you know, I went off to college. They took me to church, had good religious training, but I just didn't grasp that kind of thing. And yet on his deathbed, he's telling me that. And two days later, I was able to be with him, with my wife and with Stuart and with my brother and his wife and hold his hand and read passages from the Bible that he had want to hear and say prayers. Because I was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I could do what he needed to have done for him be there, and I was able to participate in his funeral, and uh, I was able to do the family eulogy. Uh, I I knew some of his business friends. I was able to just do that kind of thing, and since he had lived with us, uh, Teresa, my former wife now, was able to do part of that as well, and my son Stuart got up, and he read the 23rd Psalm, and here's what I've never expected, but I think this needs to be said on this broadcast, too, is... Inside of a year, we're reading the 23rd Psalm at my son's funeral. Stuart died tragically and unexpectedly in my second year of sobriety in July 2002. And he completed the Suicide Act. And the night before, I'd been here at Mar on a Tuesday night in ARP. And I can remember Rich B. asked me, how are things going? I said, pretty good. And things did seem to be going pretty good. I was sober. I was sponsoring guys. Handful of guys from Mar, handful of guys from other places. And I went home, and Stuart, um, the last thing he said is, Dad, make sure my soccer clothes are ready. And I went to bed, and he went to bed, and he slept down in the basement. And my wife went out, got up the next morning. She went out to run, and when she got in, she said, why don't you go get up Stuart? So I went downstairs, and I found him, and he had hung himself. His feet were on the floor and his knees were bent. And I thought he was going to stand up and say, just kidding, Dad. And I went over and held him. And, you know, there wasn't going to be any first aid or CPR. Uh, he had been dead for a while. And uh, I ran upstairs and I asked Teresa to 
called 911, and I picked the phone. I called my sponsor. I called Pat, and he said, oh, my God, I'll be right over. And so he came over, and, um, of course, the EMTs come, and it's a crime scene till they make sure it, it is as it appears, and it was as it appears. And as a note, he is probably trying to do the choking game where people try and get asphyxiation high, but, it, you know, whatever was going on doesn't really matter. He was... Um, dead and Pat came over and I can remember I asked Pat Pat why do these things happen and he did what people in Alcoholics Anonymous do that don't know the answer is Robert I I just don't know he was over there and a neighbor came over John and John and Pat and I sat down at the table and Pat says Robert why don't you get your big book John was not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous but he gave he said give him the book and opened to page 63 and we did the third step prayer it goes like this God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties so that victory over them may bear witness to those I might help. Of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life, may I do thy will always. And I believe that prayer was answered that day. Um, another thing of interest is I was standing there getting a cup of coffee in the kitchen. I was looking out the front window busy with Pat, and a couple of friends drove up that were members and active in our home group, and one of them was Art S. He had gotten out of bar a couple years before me. And then members of my home group show up, and the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened, and, um, you know, you think of things that happen in life and things that are absolutely tragic and the death of a child that you wanted and loved and sought out to die is absolutely awful and yet the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous happened the home group showed up and people were there and they helped us plan for the funeral and get food into the house and answer the phone for us and just a host of things were done and people talk about the importance of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous which is where we apply the 12 steps and the spiritual principle, which help us stay sober. And they talk about the fellowship, which is like being a member of a home group, the social activities you might do or the support people give. And people sometimes overemphasize, I believe, the importance of the program at the expense of the fellowship. This is one of those times where the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous um, really was emphasized to me as a time in my life where I saw the love of God in a very powerful way. And people that came at that time as well, included people like Doug Brush and Ewell, and Stuart died on a Wednesday, and I'll never forget, we buried him on a Friday at at Dunwoody Baptist Church, and um, the community of Mar was there along with about 600 other people, and so people who were currently in treatment, many of them, some didn't come, but many of them were there, people I sponsored were there, Corky D., was in treatment that time. He was the last guy I talked to before before I found Stuart. <clears throat> and uh, that was Friday night. It was the end of July, and it was speaker meeting night and where we celebrated birthdays at Peachtree Corners. And I went to a meeting the day that we buried Stuart. And, you know, this was one of those times in life. It was another fork in the road. I, we all have these forks in the road, like when you get married. Uh, when you get sober, uh, and the death of a child is one of those times that uh, 
It makes you reevaluate life. But, you know, I had committed to stay sober that day. I'd ask God for help, and I've kept doing that on a day-to-day basis. Um, death by suicide is stigmatized. It's challenging to talk about. I knew I needed help. I ended up getting some support through survivors of suicide groups, and those are groups that are led by peers, not by a counselor telling you what to do, but peers saying, here's what we did. Sort of like 12-step recovery. And uh, I did that for a while. I ended up stopping for about six months, and my sponsor said, maybe you should go back, and I went back. And uh, interestingly, the people in the group had learned a lot while I was gone, and I was able to learn from the group. And before I knew it, I was asked to actually facilitate those groups. I've been doing that for a while now, for like 12 years now. And I've been asked to speak at conferences around suicide prevention and suicide postvention, meaning the aftercare that's provided when suicide occurs because of the challenges that it causes, the guilt and shame and things like that. I, you had mentioned about relationships. What occurred after that is several years after that, my first wife, Teresa, and I ended up getting a divorce. I'm pleased to say that she's remarried. She's doing well. Um, she has been working, supporting students in a spiritual journey through uh, the Baptist student ministry at Georgia State for a number of years and has done a great job in the areas of service where she has wanted to. And uh, I, I remarried as well, and I've been married to Carrie for 12 years now. And so, you know, getting sober, I think often relationships can be mended and improved. Sometimes people do have challenges because family dynamics have changed. But I do believe through the amends process, things can get better. The... 20 years of living with an active alcoholic and then you throw in the death of a child and uh, and I accept many of the responsibilities for the marriage potentially not working out, but nonetheless, that that's what happens. So people that are looking at treatment, here's what I'd say. As you come to a treatment program like MAR, MAR can allow you to get sober. And in my case, MAR has supported me through some of the most challenging times of my life, the death of my son, the death of my father, as a matter of fact, the death of my brother, and going through the divorce with with Teresa, I talked with men who had been through divorce, and they helped me learn to deal with that. So if you're listening to this podcast, thinking about treatment, <clears throat> one of the things that I'd say was really helpful is they had a family program. And during the family program, family members could come to more, and they could learn about the nature of addiction, the nature of treatment, what 12-step recovery is, and what to expect when the client gets back home. And they also offered ongoing counseling, in particular for people who are in the metro Atlanta area. And I think the offering of the counseling and the treatment, the therapeutic interventions, is important for the family as it is for the alcoholic or the addict. In AA, we do say it's a family disease. And it's because living with an alcoholic will impact and warp the lives of blameless children and wives is what the big book says, and that's true. When I'm drinking and I'm drugging and people are bailing me out of jail and they're ready to throw me out of the house, it is disrupting the way that a family is to live. And the process of getting sober and making amends is where healing can occur, but those roles still have to be ferreted out over time. You know, I feel that I've really been lucky that in the midst of challenges during sobriety, 
is I've had the benefit of long-term relationships with people at MAR, the benefit of long-term relationships with people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and the benefit of long-term relationships of a whole host of people uh, that I might have grown up with here in Atlanta and now know that I'm sober. Interestingly, I went to school that had a very small high school class, 30 people in it, and four people have gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's a few others that need it. And, you know, I stay in touch with these, and I'll never forget the first time I showed up. Uh, for our, we'd get together about once a year. Went to high school over near Chestane Park, and in the kitchen there was an island. There's all sorts of bottles of liquor, and I just was pouring a diet coke. My buddy Rex, who was one of the first guys I drank with, he says, "What's up? Why don't you have a couple shots of Crown Royal?" I says, "Man, I had to give it up. I had to join AA and get sober. I didn't go through the whole treatment thing." And he looked at me and he says, "Probably a good thing." <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, a whole host of relationships are impacted by what happens in treatment and by what happens when you get sober and stay sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd say for the people listening to this and family members, there's a lot of concern. Is this situation hopeless? Is it hopeless? I'll never forget that. That's what my wife asked me, and I'll come back to that. But I want to say this first, is yes, there's hope. There's hope the family member can get sober. There's hope that relationships can get restored, and there's hope for long-term relationships after that. When I overdosed that last time, and I'm at the hospital, I'm at Piedmont Hospital, and you can't just call an Uber and go home or anything like that. They make you call somebody. And so I, call, I called up my wife, and here's what she said. This is the woman who's bailed me out of jail for drinking problems, who's bailed me out of jail a couple times, for these felonious activities. And she says, Robert, is there any hope? And you know, the things I think about now is that was a tipping point. That was a question because I was on the cusp of sobriety at that point. And the big book says we have to come to believe in the hopeless and futility of life as we'd been living it. Was my life hopeless? Was it futile? I was about to believe so. A little bit later it says... You know, we have to concede to innermost selves that we're alcoholics. This is the first step of recovery, was I willing to concede. And I believe intellectually I had this idea as an alcoholic, but I think to concede, it means I had to believe it in my innermost self. I had to take it from my head to my heart as alcoholic. I had to understand what it meant to be an alcoholic and what I had to do about my alcoholism. And so these tipping point questions are the kind of thing that um, make us decide, am I going to do something about it? You know, you can identify a problem, but you have to have a solution. You have to have a program of action. That's what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous, and Mar was able to help me with that. So I think these relationship problems uh, are the kind of things that can be overcome. When I think about hope, I also think about healing. And, you know, when I think about, like, the death of my son by suicide, is I did have to reach for outside help, but I also can remember... My son died on a Wednesday. <clears throat> we buried him on a Friday, and I came here on a Saturday morning to the ARP group, and Doug let me talk about it. And on the anniversary of that, I still talk about it, and I still do support groups. And when it's appropriate, I talk about it, like this podcast. I think it's important to talk about because there is healing. You know, um, I mentioned earlier that counselor in Peachford said, do you think Alcoholics Anonymous can work for you? That's really a question to be asked. Do you think treatment can work for you? Do you think Alcoholics Anonymous can work for you? 
And I think the real answer is yes, it can. I don't think there's any case that's hopeless. And here's what I say, too. People would say, well, if this happens or that happens, I may drink or do drugs again. And I'm here to say that I think when you have a relationship with a higher power, with God, if you will, when you get engaged with other people who are involved in recovery, and that could be maintaining relationships at Mar. For me, it's maintaining strong relationships in Alcoholics Anonymous and being of service to Mar. I think you can stay sober. And things that have in your life have nothing to do with whether you stay sober. Really, my relationship with a higher power is what has to do with whether I stay sober. So about relationships, you know, if there was this podcast, there's stuff going on. <laughs> and But there's hope. I think there's really hope. And a place like Morris is the kind of place that doesn't just know we need to treat the addict or alcoholic. We need to do something for the whole family dynamic. Very well said. Um, I notice you're wearing a bracelet that says something about what's it say? Yeah, what it Su- says is suicide prevention starts with suicide prevention starts with me. So I spoke at a conference about two weeks ago. It was down at Callaway Gardens, and it was on a suicide prevention and aftercare conference. And uh, I was on a I made a presentation, but I was also on a panel, one with a notable. Uh, television personality who lost her husband, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. She's on Good Morning America, and she's the doctor that does the healthcare news and a lot of stuff about women's health. But tragically, her husband died by suicide about three years ago. She wrote a book, and she was a very interesting participant in the panelist in the, in the panel. And there's panel members uh, who had other different losses. So I had a son who had died, and there's a woman who was a nurse who had a son who had died. And loss of a close friend and loss of a spouse. And, you know, how do you deal with something like that? And I think one of the ways is, is some of the very things they teach you at Mars, you have to tell your story. You know, you come here and go to feeling school, and people as this may not know what feeling school is, but feeling school is the, during the first 30 days, you go to day treatment, and part of what you do is you write a life story. And knowing the truth of your life is how you come to grips with the truth of your life and you can get better with the challenging things of your life. At one point, I'd have been very ashamed about the whole idea of being an alcoholic, and that doesn't bother me too much, but it's because I've said it enough and I've told my story enough. And I think to get over challenging things like death of a child or death by suicide or other things, you have to learn to talk about it and deal with the emotional disruptions it's caused and ultimately make peace with it. Just like my dad said, at some point I've got to make peace with God and my fellow man. And, you know, today I'm at peace with things. There's stuff going on at work, and there's probably stuff going on. You know, there's stuff going on, but right now I'm okay. I'm here with you, Matt. Things are good, you know? So, um, yeah. What would you say to, um, you know, somebody who is struggling, uh, and they hear what you're talking about, getting a home group, doing all this service work, sponsoring people, and you're, you know, you keep a pretty busy schedule in terms of, um, staying active in 12-step recovery and 12-step fellowship, what would that a person hearing that who's not in it yet might think, oh my gosh, I don't have time for all that, or or that sounds like a lot of work, or I don't know that that's might be totally overwhelmed by like I have to do all that, like that's that sounds like another full-time job. What would you say? You know, when you hear this and you're on the outside looking in. It um, sounds like a lot of work. 
And so the question that I had to come to grips with was, does my life depend on it? And I had to decide that if I'm alcoholic, I'm going to need to do something. And on the front end, it wasn't, it, it sounds like a heavy lift. The truth is, it's not particularly a heavy lift now, but if I tried to do what I do now on day one, I'd have been consumed. I think it's sort of like somebody who might practice medicine and they're going in to do operations today. Well, when they're entering biology class in high school, they're ill-prepared to think about that in the way that a surgeon might think about it. But I tell you the truth, the surgeon probably got up and drove over to the hospital today, and they're thinking about playing golf this weekend, or they're going to go see Georgia Tech. Oh, my God, are they ever going to win a game? Or the yeah. Falcons, are they ever going to win a game? Or something like that. And they're not just consumed with, what am I going to do? They're going to go read about the chart, and they'll talk with the other clinicians, and they'll have a plan, they'll do what they're supposed to do, and then go to the next case. And so if you're not involved in 12-step recovery, all you really have to do is find out where the meeting is and drive there and show up on time for the first meeting and hang around a little bit afterwards and raise your hand and say, this is my first meeting. And people of your gender will introduce themselves and share phone numbers and take those phone numbers and go back to the same meeting a couple times if you liked it. And if you didn't like it, go to a different meeting. But go back and you'll see some of the same people and you'll sort of get some of the jargon because there's recovery jargon, probably some of which that I used. And you'll find it's a group of people that'll probably go out to coffee after the meeting or go get dessert or lunch or dinner, depending on the time of the day. And you'll find that this is a group of people and the only thing they really want to do is help you. And much like the surgeon who, when he's taking that biology class, he doesn't know what all he's going to have to do to perform that surgery. At the beginning, all you have to do is go to that biology class and, you know, down the road you do the things that you need to do to perform a surgery. I would say that um, that is a, certainly a first step. And the next step would be is maybe ask a person of the same gender to sponsor you. And a sponsor is somebody that has taken the 12 steps and they know how to share the message of the 12 steps with another person. And they can sort of guide you through what goes on in 12-step recovery, whether it's AA or NA or whatever, and let you know about some other meetings they go to, some good meetings, um, maybe some activities you might want to participate in. And they can give the guidance that you need because when you're brand new, it just seems like it's a new language where they talking about the big book. How big is that big book, you know? <laughs> and um, so I, uh, going to a meeting, first of all, going back a couple of times, getting some numbers and making a couple of phone calls and maybe asking someone to sponsor you. And sponsorship's not like a marriage. <clears throat> if it doesn't work out or they live on the other side of town or whatever, you can switch sponsors and find somebody who can guide you effectively through the 12 steps. And when the time is right, there'll be additional things for somebody that's involved in 12-step recovery to do. You know, I went to that first meeting, and I was just there along with some other guys, my first meeting when I was at Mar and I was at Peachtree Corners. And I'd have little thought that I'd be sponsoring guys and doing all sorts of things later. And I was just going, and I was just going to go to the meeting with the other people, and next thing I know, I have a sponsor, and next thing I know, I'm working on my recovery, and next thing I know... I'm in a home group, and so some of these activities, they just sort of naturally blossom. And uh, it's not anything to be fearful of. It's something to be a little anxious about. 
But, you know, when I'm anxious about something, I've learned that I just have to have a little bit of courage and take that step and put one foot in front of the other and go to that meeting and, you know, it'll, it'll be absolutely fine. And you'll find a group of people that is glad to see you there. It's like, how do you eat an elephant one, one bite at a time? That's it. <laughs> absolutely. You know, you can't do it all at once, all but right. you, you got to start somewhere. Just for people that are new to this, because I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast are just in the early stages of figuring out there might be a problem going on in their household, and they're trying to seek help. They don't really know what to go do next. So what's the difference between this AA thing and this 12-step fellowship and program and treatment, and what's how do those overlap, and is there any overlap? Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. So treatment would be some type of intervention, potentially medical, potentially behavioral, potentially spiritual, where when somebody shows up with problems with alcohol or drugs, this intervention is meant to, um, one, minimize consequences, two, potentially arrest the addictive behavior. Typically, you're thinking about alcohol and drugs, but of course, there's treatment for overeating and all sorts of just almost anything you can do to excess. <laughs> there's treatment for gambling and things like that. But here we're talking about addiction to alcohol and drugs. And Mars treatment program is it's a residential program, and you live in a community uh, with other people who are also receiving treatment, and there's a common goal. People are committed to getting sober. There's an interview process where people are assessed for their willingness to work on getting sober. So the people living in community are working together to get sober, and there's also treatment processes, which can include evaluation, psychiatric evaluation, psychological evaluation, and behavior intervention, and group therapy. And all of these therapeutic interventions are helped to move people from the addictive behavior the active use of alcohol and drugs to a position of abstinence. 12-step recovery, specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, and Alcoholics Anonymous was founded the the date where they claim it was begun was in June 10th, 1935, when the co-founders, Bill W. and Bob S., both were able to maintain continuous sobriety. Bill W. had found sobriety in November of the prior year of 1934, and he had worked trying to find other alcoholics he could help, having little success. But his wife pointed out, there has been success, Bill, because you've been staying sober. And he found Dr. Bob on Mother's Day weekend after a failed business attempt in Akron, Ohio. And uh, Dr. Bob, after visiting with Bill, said, this is the first man I've talked to who understands. Bill went there. So he could stay sober and work with Dr. Bob and talk to him about his spiritual program of recovery, which in essence at that time, as prior to the writing of the big book, he had recognized his weakness to alcohol. He had found out the true nature of the disease of alcoholism based on conversations with Dr. William D. Silkworth, who worked at Towns Hospital in New York City, and let him know that he was bodily different from other people, that the main problem of the alcoholic may center in his mind, but any treatment that overlooks the physical factor is going to be incomplete. And Bill found out that once he started drinking, taking that first drink, he'd drink till he gets drunk and keep on drinking. And they described it as a uh, an allergy and a phenomenon of craving. And so Bill had pieces of information about the nature of the disease, and he ran to friend Ebby 
who was a childhood friend that had problems with drinking, and he had gotten sober in the Oxford Group of the Day, which is a parachurch organization founded on first century Christian principles. And the intervention was that maybe he needed help from God to not take the first drink. And so Bill found himself in a place where he knew the nature of the disease, he knew the nature of the solution, it was God, and there's a program of action that the Oxford Group had, which included restitution for harms and trying to help other people. And that's why Bill was trying to help Bob S. Bob S. finally got sober on June 10th and remained sober till his death. Bill stayed sober till his death, and they started helping other alcoholics. And that's how Alcoholics Anonymous was founded, and they've developed literature to help people actually take the steps. Alcoholics Anonymous can be found in communities certainly all around the U.S. and around the world, and in groups they have a purpose, and their purpose is to stay sober, help other alcoholics get sober, and we help other alcoholics get sober. They often pop pills, do drugs, and all sorts of other things. But if alcoholic, they can help alcoholics in a unique fashion that often others who are non-alcoholic cannot. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, what I think often is helpful is for people that have problems with alcohol or drugs is to try 12-step recovery. Go and get a sponsor, and if you can emulate what the sponsor does, presumably they're sober, you can take those 12 steps and you will be helping other people and you can get sober. I tried that personally, and I could not focus on Alcoholics Anonymous closely enough, and I kept drinking, and ultimately what happens, if you can't go and get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of two things happens. You end up losing your family, you lose your job, you end up sleeping under the bridge, and your treatment is crawling up to an AA clubhouse and living there all day long. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably still have some level of resources available such that... Intervention of treatment can allow for those therapeutic interventions that I mentioned earlier, and a component at MAR anyway, and at many treatment centers, is to send people to 12-step recovery that's appropriate to support the type of addiction they have, if alcoholic. Alcoholics Anonymous is certainly a great one, but there's other 12-step fellowships, Heroin Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, that can also uh, be a benefit. So my experience is, is I tried Alcoholics Anonymous, and I sort of floundered in and out. I showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous as a result of some felonies I committed. I had DUIs in my 20s, and I can remember I had three DUIs at one point. And uh, I hired an attorney, and this attorney knew the judge, and we actually met in the judge's chambers. And the judge looked at my three DUIs, and he flipped through those three yellow tickets, There are citations for other problems, such as collisions and things like that. There's also a printout of some other arrests I'd had, public drunkenness, drunken disorderly. This judge looked at me, and he said, Mr. Bell, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? And my real thought was, no, it's all those quaaludes I was eating is the problem I have. (laughs) But I didn't say that to the judge. But, you know, it's clear that I had problems with alcohol and drugs. And that activity continued in my 30s. I'd started on some pain pills based on having um, an operation. And I found myself with this plan. Uh, My wife didn't like my drinking. She didn't like those DUIs. And I found that if I took maybe four pain pills instead of two, uh, and maybe even six instead of two, that I could get this ease and comfort, sort of like I got from alcohol. 
And then she couldn't smell the booze on my breath. But there's a problem with that because when you take too many and you're laying unconscious on the floor, your wife knows something is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I was having problems with these drugs and I found doctors beside the surgeon to write prescriptions. I got my primary care physician. He knew how painful abdominal surgery was. And I found some other doctors who likewise would write prescriptions. And I noticed one doctor left prescription pads in his office and left them there with me while he was out of the office. And so I picked some up. And, and I'm not a doctor and I'm not a pharmacist, but I did learn how to write prescriptions. <laughs> and so I got arrested in the early 90s for forgery. And I could have gotten off on a first offense, but I had no defense against the first drink or the first drug. And before I knew it, I had been charged with robbing a drugstore as well and assault and it wasn't like I was in there with a pistol robbing the pharmacist, but it was sort of like that in a way, and uh, I was in deep trouble. And so my attorney, in an effort to help me minimize the problems I might have, one of the things he did is he sat me down. He says, you know, Robert, I may be able to plea bargain this thing, and I've been able to plea bargain it from 10 years down to two years. He says, but Robert, you're going to prison. And my real thought was is, I'm not a prison guy. I'm more of a jail guy than a prison guy, you know. And uh, So that was scary. But he also sent me to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'd been going to Alcoholics Anonymous for roughly nine years, floundering in and out. And I'd hear things like, if you can make it to midnight, you're a winner. But, you know, I'd be sitting on my hands and clenching my fists and my teeth were gritted. And I didn't feel like a winner because I wasn't taking the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they'd say things like, meeting makers make it. Well, the only thing that meeting makers make is they make meetings. The people that get sober in Alcoholics Anonymous are the people who get sponsors and take steps and start helping other people like I talked about earlier. So I'd floundered in and out of AA, and as I mentioned, at that last overdose at work, and I might want to mention uh, the last job where I overdosed, and it sort of pointed towards my sobriety date. I was working at a recreation facility housed at a church, Churches particularly frown on overdosing on drugs, and uh, I ended up losing that job. As I mentioned, my wife packed me off. Before I knew it, I ended up in MAR. So 12-step recovery is there. It's available for the community. It's uh, free, although it is self-supporting, and they pass baskets, but it is free. And so you can go there, you can participate, you can introduce yourself, and you can find different types of meeting. In 12-step meetings, there's gender-specific meetings. There's meetings that are open discussion groups. There's literature study meetings where you might study the big book or the 12 and 12, another notable piece of literature from Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's speaker meetings. And I think uh, somebody that's having problems with alcohol or drugs, they should certainly try that. So AA is a spiritual program that uh, really uh, is a fellowship of alcoholics who get together and they meet on a regular basis and they apply these spiritual principles that changes their life and they get down to the causes and conditions so they don't have to take that first drink, they don't have to take that first drug and then because of the great gratitude that they have for that and because of what really works is they carry this message to other alcoholics. So treatment for me was an important intervention. It allowed me to be separated from alcohol and drugs. I was away from my family, from my wife and from my son. I was away from work. I was away from some of the distractions that when I'd go to AA, I'd go there and I'd say, remember, it's the first drink that'll kill you. It's the first drink that'll kill you. It's the first drink that'll kill you. 
And then I'd go to home, and I'd go to work, and I'd do this, and I'd do that, and something would upset me. I'd get that bit of restless, irritable, and discontentedness that the big book talks about. And it would drive me to that first drink. And then it was on again. And, you know, I even had times where, for example, there was one point in my life, it was in my early 20s before I got married, and I was drinking, I was doing cocaine, I was dropping quaaludes, and it was a mess. And I went on this run from Wednesday to like a Saturday, and I pulled out of it late Saturday night, went to bed and got up and really felt I, I had to quit. And, you know, I was able to kick the drugs. I was able to kick that cocaine and quaalude habit. But the way I did it is I went out and bought a fifth of old granddad, and if you buy a fifth of old granddad every day, you don't have to do drugs. But see, I, I didn't realize the nature of the disease of alcoholism. And I've got to say this, too. In my second year of sobriety, or my third year of sobriety, my brother Scott, he was um, 43 years old, and he checked in the hospital on October 3rd, 2003, and he died on October 22nd, 2003. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. This is from drinking too much. How old was he? He was 43. And on that morning of October 3rd, he uh, got up and he was throwing up blood. And his wife says, you've got to go to the doctor. He says, no, I've really got to go to work. And he was drinking anywhere from a pint to a quart of vodka. But he had drank it earlier in the day, get to bed, go to work. He was, quote, a functional alcoholic. Didn't think it was that bad. He had tried AA and he had been to treatment. The day he got out of treatment, he went out and drank. Uh, it was another treatment center, I'll, I'll add. And, uh, you know, I'd talked with Doug, and if he had gotten out of the hospital, Doug had a place for him. And that's the type of place Mar is. That's the kind of place they build relationships, and they built a relationship with me. And the treatment was vital, it was important. It separated me so that I could actually go to AA and get a sponsor and work the steps. You know, it seems like many, many treatment centers refer people to AA, but AA really is the end of the line. You never have anybody show up and say, hey, I'm from AA. They sent me to you, you know. Mm -hmm. And But AA is the place where you can go and get long-term sobriety, but it was vital for me to get treatment. And I hear people say stuff like, <clears throat> you know, treatment is uh, perhaps like an ambulance that gets you to the hospital. And if I had a heart attack today, I'd want an ambulance to come scoop me up. But to tell you the truth, I don't want the cardiac care at the hospital. I wouldn't want them to just like, you know, give me a couple shots and take me home and think everything's going to be okay. I want comprehensive cardiac care. And I think what treatment is, it's like that ambulance that stabilizes you and it gets you prepared for long-term recovery. And for people who are alcoholics of the hopeless variety that the big book talks about, I believe the only way to have continuous sobriety is to have a relationship with a higher power that can keep you away from that first drink. And though there are other spiritual approaches, and the big book encourages other spiritual approaches, but it also says we have a process at work. They say we do not have a monopoly on recovery. And so I believe that, but what I know is since I've been in AA and I've been active in AA, I've been able to stay sober. I'll never forget my wife asked one time, I was nine months sober, and I was standing in the hallway right beside the door going into ARP, and I was getting ready to go to a counseling session with Yule. And my wife says, is Robert going to have to keep going to these AA meetings forever? And Yule said, when was the last time you were sober for nine months? She never mentioned it again. So AA has been the thing that has provided long-term sobriety, but I think without Mar, what would have happened to me is I would have drank till I lost my marriage. I would have not been able to be employed. I would have not been able to go to Mar. 
And if I survived it, because I was about the age of my brother, if I'd survived it, I'd been one of those guys who's homeless, showing up at AA, and all I'd be eating was donuts in the morning, and leftover potato chips or something that's around the clubhouse, and going to that 7.30 meeting at NABA, then maybe the 9.30 meeting, going to 11 o'clock Bridge Builders, the 1.30 meeting, 5.45, and then 8 o'clock. That would have been my treatment. And there's people that get sober that way, but I am so thankful and so grateful that I came to Mars. So that... That explains a bit of the difference of what 12-step recovery is versus treatment. Uh, in general, you have to pay for treatment, although there are um, publicly funded treatment centers. And, uh, of course, there's many treatment centers that offer um, scholarships and things like that. So you don't have to just show up with all the money, but you're receiving a service and um, you know there's compensation for services like most things. Last question. Um, if you could pass on something to people who are listening that you've learned, some hard-won um, wisdom or experience, what would it be? I think one of the scariest and most frightful things that I hear about is people who get involved in recovery and return to drinking or using drugs. And... I think when you identify that it is a chronic illness, and by chronic I mean it's recurrent, you may have it at bay, but it's there waiting just over the horizon to pop its head up, much like diabetes, is once a person realizes they have the disease of alcoholism, addiction, or whatever, and people get into a position of recovery, they move out, it is sad, sad, sad. And see, I want to maintain my sobriety. I want to stay sober today, and I want to get up tomorrow and do it again. So I think the hard-learned lesson is that this is a commitment that I do one day at a time. I'm going to do the things that I need to do today to stay sober. But Dr. Bob, who is one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, talks about permanent sobriety. And he talks about the, the reliance on his Heavenly Father and I really think learning to understand that this is something that I have to do on a day-to-day -day basis, but I need to commit to it, and I don't take days off, and I can tell stories about that. I don't take days off, and that doesn't mean there's not a day that I don't go to a meeting, but I have these things that you might would say are ritual, and if you look at the word spiritual, it ends with ritual. I have these things that might be looked as a ritual where I get up and I ask God for help and I read daily devotional literature and I talk to other alcoholics and on the days I'm supposed to go to meetings, I go to meetings. And on other days, I do what I'm supposed to. I've got the day off today. But if I'm supposed to go to work, I actually go to work. I get there on time. I stay as long as I'm supposed to. I learned this in AA, that there's three keys to staying, in, staying employed. You go to work, you stay at work, and the key is, is you work at work, you know? <laughs> you, don't, you don't do Facebook at work. You don't shop at work. You work at work. And so I find that when I do these things on a day-to-day -day basis, I can maintain my sobriety. And, you know, I've got 18 years plus now, and many people that have come to Mar have more, and many people that have come to Mar have continuous sobriety. But the bulk of them do it by maintaining the activities that they learn while they're at Mar. <clears throat> so the hard-learned lesson is based right now on my own experience of not being involved in recovery and not doing the things that sober people do. 
versus being involved in recovery and doing the things that sober people do and knowing that I need to keep doing it if I want to maintain my sobriety. So I'd say it's consistency and it's sort of looking at this like a marathon versus a sprint. It's really not a 100-yard dash. It's really not getting through 90 days of treatment or any extended period you might stay involved in treatment. But it's really doing that and having an aftercare plan that includes long-term recovery. And most of the people involved in long-term recovery find some spiritual approach, such as AA or 12-step recovery or something else, where they may be reaching out. But then just saying, I'm going to do this one day at a time, and you know I can reevaluate down the road, but right now I'm going to do it. And I can tell you what, I'm going to be making the meetings that I make this week. There's a good chance I'm going to the speaker meeting tonight at one of the clubhouses. I go to a beginner's meeting on Tuesday. Probably not going to meeting Wednesday. On Thursday, I'm going to be at my home group. It's our business meeting, and then a big book study after that. Friday, I'll probably go out to dinner with my wife. Saturday, I'll be going to the speaker meeting. And on Sunday, I meet with some guys. And I'm actually telling my story up at the Alpharetta group. So, you know, I am living it one day at a time. But I also sort of have plans, you know. I plan to be going to the Atlanta Roundup next summer. I plan to go to the Atlanta Men's Workshop next spring. I just got through the Atlanta Men's Workshop from this past weekend. So I have ideas of things I'm going to do, but I also know tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up and start the day like I did today. Mm. So I think it's commitment. I think it's um, intentional. I think it's long-term, but it's by doing it today. You know, I'll go to the gym today. I've been running the Peachtree Road Race 30-plus years, and it does me no good to have a gym membership for 30 years. It's what I do at the gym that's what's important. So having this day-to-day Sobriety is important, but what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is important as well. It has a couple things, but hopefully somebody can grab something from it. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for sharing your your time and your your experience with us. It's been really nice getting to talk with you. It's been fun for me. You know, Mar saved my life. I really say that, and they've supported me at the challenging times of my life, and I really do whatever I can to help Mar out. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co-produced by Angela Edmonds and our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.